how does a person enter the kingdom of God? Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30, lays out a blueprint on how anyone can enter the kingdom of God. In these verses, we find an interaction where the king calls for allegiance to his kingdom and warns us of dangers that may hinder us from the kingdom. And so this morning's message is going to come to us in two parts. And so part one is allegiance tested. If you would follow along with me in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? The opening verses here, we see this young man, and as we continue to read, we're going to realize he is a rich young man interacting with Jesus, asking him some genuine questions. We don't know all of his motives, but this story also comes in the gospel of Mark and in the gospel of Luke, and we learn in those gospel accounts that not only is he rich, not only is he young, but he's a ruler. He has authority. He's got influence. He's got power. In the eyes of this world, this guy's got everything this world's going after in the prime of his life. He's got money. He's got possessions. He's got influence. He's making decisions. This guy looks great. And he comes up to Jesus and he's recognizing, but what about like after my life? Like what, what's going to happen then? Like I, I realize there's maybe something more going on to this life. And so he's asking Jesus, what good thing, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, if you notice Jesus's response here, it's, it might throw you off a little bit because Jesus doesn't directly answer his question. But what Jesus is doing is he's teaching. Jesus is a master teacher. This is what Jesus does. And so Jesus says to him, why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who's good. Why does Jesus respond like this? There's probably a number of reasons why, but at least two reasons why Jesus responds this way is Jesus, first off, he's not denying that he's good. But what he is doing is he's pointing to God being the only one who's good. God is the one with who, who, who there is only goodness. There, there's no mixed motives. He's pure. There's only goodness in God. That's all that there is. And so when the rich young ruler says, what good deed must I do? Immediately when you have this word good, it's like, well, what do you mean by good? You got to have a definition. There's a standard. What is a good deed? Well, the only one who can truly define for us what a good deed is, is God. And so what God, or what Jesus does here, is he points them to the good things that God's already commanded us to do. He says, keep the commandments. He's talking about the 10 commandments here. And so Jesus goes on to list commandments five through nine, all the commandments that deal with interacting with other humans, right? And then he finishes it up by saying, and love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus. It's a summary of all of those commandments. Secondly, oh, sorry, quote from a biblical scholar, R.T. France. 
He says in this way, the commandments thus function not as an automatic passport to life, but as a pointer to the absolute goodness of the one who gave them. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's pointing him to God, saying, no, 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 don't look to the things that you could do to get to eternal life, to get to heaven, but instead look to the only one who is good because he is the only one who can get you eternal life. Look to him. Turn to him. Keep in step with who he's already called you to be, how he's called you to live. So Jesus is pointing this rich ruler to look to God and God alone. And he responds, well, which commandments do I need to keep? And like I said, commandments five through nine, loving your neighbor as yourself. And then in verse 20, the young man says, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? Now, we don't know for sure if he's telling the truth or if he's lying here, right? Did he really keep his commandments? Now, it's probable, right, that he hadn't murdered somebody. He hadn't slept with somebody who wasn't his wife. Uh, He hadn't stolen anything. He hadn't lied, and he honored his parents. At least on the surface level, this guy externally was like a good moral guy, but we don't know where his heart was. And we're, we're going to see more on that here in verse 21. And so Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now first, a bit on this word perfect. Because when we hear the word perfect, we typically have Uh, some ideas in mind already, and the way that Jesus uses this term, it's a bit different than what we think. It doesn't necessarily mean complete moral perfection. This Greek word teleos, it's a bit wider than that. And teleos, um, it indicates completeness, wholeness. The Apostle Paul used it to refer to spiritual maturity, a life totally integrated into the will of God, and thus reflecting God's character. Think wholehearted devotion. So, so think, my life's totally integrated into God's will. I don't have pieces that are fractioned off where I do my own thing, where I'm disobedient. No, no, no. I'm fully trusting God. I'm walking with him. That's what this, word, this term teleos, or as it gets translated to us, perfect means. Sell what you have, give to the poor. So is Jesus setting a precedent for us that in order to enter the kingdom of God, we have to sell all we have to the poor? Is that what Jesus is laying out for us? Well, before I can answer that question, let me take a step back and go back to where we started off in the series on the kingdom of God. In this series, the very first week, Darren preached a message on Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It was titled, Jesus' Message. Jesus' message was what he preached city to city, village to village. And it's this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, when Jesus says repent, what he means by repent, the word repent means is you're, you're going one way in life. You're going down a track because you think this is going to be what fulfills you, what satisfies you, what can save you. But Jesus is saying, no, no, you have to turn, get off of this track and get on track with me and follow me because Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the only one that can satisfy you, that can fulfill you, that can save you. And so Jesus said, repent, 
Turn to me. Turn away from your other ways of trying to save yourself and turn to King Jesus. And what I want you to see this morning is that Jesus' message to the rich young ruler is no different. It's the same message. He's saying the exact same thing here. See, when Jesus preached to the crowds, he preached this general message, right? Repent, the kingdom's at hand. But specifically now, he's one-on-one with this man. And he says to him, sell what you have. Because for the rich young ruler, his money, his wealth, his possessions had become a god. It'd become an idol in his heart. It'd become an attachment for him. And it's something he was trusting in that he was putting before God. It was an idol that he had made. And Jesus is saying, repent, turn away from this God that you've created and turn to me, follow me. The message that Jesus has for all of us, it was 2,000 years ago, it's the same for all of us right here, right now. It's repent for the kingdom is at hand. The question is for each and every one of you, what would that be? What, what, is the, what would the Lord put his finger on in your life? What specifically would he be calling you into repentance to? Repent, comma, fill in the blank. What would that blank be for you? If you can imagine this, it might be kind of difficult, but if you can imagine you're meeting up with Jesus at a coffee shop and you have a similar interaction with Jesus, like the rich young ruler here, what would he be calling you into repentance to? What would be the specific thing he's putting his finger on? And so we see here the rich young ruler, it was his money, his wealth, his possessions. And every kingdom has a king. And in the kingdom of God, it's King Jesus. And Jesus here is calling us into total surrender. He's calling us to align our allegiances with him that we fully are devoted to him and to him alone, not to other gods, not to other things. We're not looking to them because they cannot fulfill us. They won't. They're not created to do that. Jesus is calling us into repentance to follow him, to find the true life that is in him. Continuing on here, verse 22. When the uh, young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The young man is invited into this relationship to follow, in Jesus, to follow after Jesus. I mean, can you imagine if he did? What would have happened? It would be incredible. We, maybe we'd be reading a, the, the gospel from the rich young ruler. I don't know, but he goes away grieving. He goes away sorrowful. He goes away sad. And he never comes up again in the biblical narrative Maybe after the resurrection, he hears and and he repents and he turns. But right here in this moment, he goes away sorrowful. And the question is, is when you are invited into relationship with Christ, how do you respond? What's your response been? Uh, Pastor Tim Keller, late great Tim Keller, talking about this passage, he says this, when Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve. Because money was for him what the father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. Local, Jesus is calling us into full relationship to align our allegiance with King Jesus, to surrender all to follow him, to enter into his kingdom and to walk with him all our days. So what are we putting before him? Part two. 
of our message this morning is the upside down kingdom. Verse 23. Um, well, Jesus turns from this interaction with the rich young ruler, and now he turns to his disciples, and he gives some teaching. Many of our um, uh, passages we've covered so far in this series have been parables, where Jesus teaches, he kind of creates a narrative, he creates a story, and then he teaches off of them. And today's uh, passage is not a parable, but it kind of works like one. Jesus has this real-life interaction, and then now he teaches based off, based off of what just happened. And so he continues on here in verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so here we see some seriously heavy warnings about riches and wealth. And we have to just be honest here with what Jesus is saying. It's only with great difficulty that somebody who's rich can enter into the kingdom. And he goes on in verse 24 to say, it's, it's easier for a camel, right, this large animal, to go through the eye of a needle, right? You've got a needle, the end part, the little hole. He's saying it's easier for that to happen. You're like, wait, that doesn't seem possible. That's exactly Jesus' point, right? He's using some humor here. He's saying it's not, it's not possible, it's not possible for this to happen. Some scholars have kind of said like, oh, well, actually this was talking about like this ancient gate and this camel. Like, no, like there's not, we don't really see any good historic evidence of that. Jesus is telling us it's, it's, it's not possible. They can't. We don't just see this warning about riches here though. We see this all throughout the Bible. There's warnings all throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. Paul, writing to Timothy, uh, chapter uh, 6, verses 9 through 10, he writes this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. Paul's words here are heavy. People have left the faith because just because they were desiring to become rich, that this captured their heart more than trusting in and following Jesus, more than living in the kingdom. They wanted to build their own kingdom. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Mark, um, preaching in this series, he preached on the parable of the sowers, or sower, rather. And we saw that there were different soils and different seeds, or, or sorry, seeds that were sown into different soils, the seed being the word of God. One of these four soils was the soil of the thorns. In Matthew 13, 22, talking about the, um, this soil, it says this, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So again, we see this temptation, this danger that riches can bring, that there's a deceitfulness of riches, right? If something's deceitful, it, it promises one thing, but it can't fulfill, it doesn't fulfill. And so time and again, both Old and New Testament, we see there are so many warnings about the temptations and dangers that come with riches and wealth. Verse 25, continuing on here. Um, it's not the end of the story, though. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, 
Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so in the Jewish world, the thought was, if you were rich, if you had money, then clearly you had God's favor. God had blessed you. And so the idea was, yeah, if you're like a good moral person and you've got money, then clearly you've got God's favor. God, you, you must, if anyone's saved, it must be you. And so when Jesus comes on the scene here and he teaches this and says, no, it's not how it works. This was a new revelation. This was mind blowing for them. And they're like, well, if this guy's not saved, then who can be saved? And I love Jesus' response, right? He's a teacher. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible, right? With man, you can't be saved. If you're depending on man, if you're depending on people, if you're depending on yourself, it's, it's not possible. No one can enter the kingdom. No, the rich man cannot be saved. But guess what? The poor person can't be saved either. And the middle class can't be saved. But with God, all things are possible. With God, any, no one's too far off to be saved. Anyone can come and enter into the kingdom. Because with God, all things are possible. Um, commenting on this very passage, second century um, church theologian, this guy named Clement of Alexandria, he says this, talking about if the rich, if someone can be rich and enter the kingdom. He says this, I think it's insightful. If one is able in the midst of wealth to turn from its mystique to entertain moderate desires, to exercise self-control, to seek God alone and to breathe God and walk with God, such a man submits to the commandments, being free, unsubdued, free of disease, unwounded by wealth. And so what Clement does is he's pointing us to the fact that, yeah, you can, because with God, all things are possible. Some of the godliest people I, I know are wealthy. We have examples of this in the scripture of people being wealthy and being godly, but we have so many warnings, so many temptations, uh, or yeah, there's so many temptations that come with being wealthy. And so if you are in the room this morning, you're like, man, I, I really want to make a lot of money in this life. Maybe you're my age, around my age, or even younger. Maybe you're in high school, and this is a desire of your heart. I just want to encourage you, check this desire. Check it. Because is it possible for you to be in the kingdom and to be wealthy? Yes, but there's so many potential pitfalls with this. We've got we've to acknowledge this for what it is. We get it all throughout the, script, the scriptures. You've got to have accountability, checks and balances. In fact, it's really a call to say, you've got to be spiritually mature to handle this to the glory of God. Continuing on here in verse 27, we'll finish our passage up. Peter jumps in. Always love it when Peter jumps in. And Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first 
will be last and the last first. And so Peter starts off this, this final section here, jumping in, and he's asking Jesus this question. We, we left it all? We, we did what you said to the rich young ruler. What did we get? Is there a reward for following you, Jesus? It's a legitimate question. It's an honest question. Are there rewards for following Jesus faithfully? The answer is yes. Jesus makes it really, really clear. Yes, there are. And so when he first off starts, he says, I say to you, in the new world, which is referring to when Christ comes again, after the final judgment, Christ is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And God's people will rule and reign with him forevermore. Yeah. And so we've talked about this idea that God's kingdom is already, but not yet. It's already here, right? Jesus said, kingdom's at hand, but it's not yet fully consummate. And the kingdom is continuing to break forward in our midst. It's breaking forward here in St. Pete. It's breaking here forth in this church. But one day, it'll be, it'll be fully here. And we will rule and reign with Christ. Now, what exactly that looks like, we don't know. But he continues on in verse 29. And then he says, anyone who has left things behind, right? And he lists all those things, the, all those categories he, he puts there. To sacrifice and following Jesus, it's actually not a sacrifice. It's an investment. Because he tells us here that your return on your investment is a hundredfold. And eternal life. That we have these incredible promises here from Jesus saying, no, anything you leave behind to follow me for my sake, to build my kingdom, for my glory, it's actually an investment because you receive a hundredfold. It's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. And so the call here is to not live like the rich young ruler, to grasp tightly to our temporary earthly riches, but instead to say, no, I'm going to live empty-handed and I want to choose to build God's kingdom. His kingdom would come and his will be done in our lives, in this church, in this city. And then he finishes up here with what is my favorite verse in this entire passage. He says, the many who are first will be last in the last first. God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom. God's kingdom is countercultural to the kingdom of this world. It is a reverse economy. It operates in a different way. So what is seen as good and beautiful and successful in the eyes of this world is very, very different than what is good, beautiful, successful, meaningful in God's kingdom. Local, we're invited into living and participating under the rule and reign of God here and now. C.S. Lewis, he's one of my absolute favorite authors, lived and wrote in the early 1900s, um, wrote all different types of literature, great Christian thinker. He wrote this one small book called The Great Divorce. Okay, and now before I go any further, I got to just make really, really clear. This book is fiction. Okay, it's made up. He, he, made, he made the story up, okay? Um, it's fiction. Um, and the, the premise of the story is a man, the, the, the narrator is taking a bus ride through heaven and hell, okay? And so there's this scene in the book, and, I, and it's been a little while since I read it, so I'm paraphrasing a bit here, okay? So if you're a Lewis scholar, go easy on me. But they're going through heaven, and, uh, yeah, they're in heaven, and um, his mentor had already passed away, so he's in heaven, so his mentor's kind of showing him around a bit. And one day, 
as he's showing him around, he began to see this woman walk by. And out from this woman is like just beams of light, just radiating light coming out from her. And everybody is like noticing it. Everyone's like, whoa. And they're just looking to her and they're just like drawn into it and they're just drawn into her beauty, not in any kind of lustful way, but just like, wow, because her, her light and her beauty reflected Jesus. And as she's walking, like, like everyone's noticed, you can't not notice her. And, and flowers are blossoming around her and like bunnies are hopping around her and animals are just like galloping with her, right? And it's just this beautiful, like no one, like, whoa. And, and so the narrator's like, who is this? Like, this, this must be someone famous. Like, this is cool. Like, this is somebody famous in heaven. Everyone knows who she is. And his mentor looks at him and goes, oh, no, you, you wouldn't know her. He goes, well, no, clearly I must. Everyone here knows her. He's like, no, 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 you don't, you don't get it. Because what's popular up here in heaven is a lot different than what's popular on earth. You see, her name is Sarah Smith, and, and on earth, she, she really was a nobody. People looked over her, but, but she lived a life of pure devotion to Christ. She lived a life to build God's kingdom. And so what is great in the kingdom of God is very different than the kingdom of the world that you and I currently live in. And local church, this is who we are invited to be. We're to live lives like this, that maybe this world would quickly look over, glance our way and be like, ah, it's boring. That's simple. But we're not called to live lives that look great according to this world. We're called to live according to the kingdom of God, to build God's kingdom. The last will be first and the first will be last. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for these truths, some of them really heavy, some of them um, really go against what our culture says. Lord, help us to receive them, to accept them, to not just be hearers of your word, but to be doers of your word, to take it and live accordingly. Lord, we want to see your, king, your, your kingdom come. We want to live kingdom-minded in all that we do. Lord, help us to do just that to be these kind of peoples. Lord, would you shape us? Would you mold us in these ways? Lord, break off the things in our lives that are going against your kingdom. Lord, like the rich young ruler, would you put your finger on our lives, on our hearts, and the things that we need to repent of, that we need to turn over to you. And lastly, Lord, we want to say thank you that you've made a way that we could be with you now and forevermore. God, we thank you that it is not, it's, it's not impossible that anyone can be saved, Lord, that we can all come to know you because of what you've done for us, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Christ, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.